Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. Chapter 12 of England and the Hundred Years' War by Charles William Chadwick Oman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. The Wars of the Roses, 1450 to 1464. Down to the moment of the loss of Normandy, the misfortunes of the French war had provoked no more than a certain amount of clamorous criticism of the king's ministers. The burden of the war had not been very heavily felt. It had been largely maintained with French money, and the parliamentary grants and aid had not been extravagant. The drain of men had been considerable, but it had fallen entirely on volunteers and mercenaries. The hope of conquering all France had long been abandoned, and as long as a broad foothold was kept beyond the channel, the details of the struggle had not been minutely investigated. It was generally thought that a good deal of mismanagement and maladministration was going on, and grumbling never ceased, but there had as yet been no great explosion of popular wrath. The fact that the opposition was headed by a discredited and reckless busybody like Humphrey of Gloucester had also availed somewhat to weaken its criticism of the ministers. Now, however, matters were changed. The great duchy of Normandy had been lost in a few months, and this disaster fell like a thunderclap on the nation. Moreover, the discontented had now got an able and popular leader in Richard of York who, as men now began to remember, was very near the throne. Since Gloucester's death, the duke was the first prince of the blood, and the king's nearest kinsman. Moreover, Henry had now been five years wedded and yet had no offspring. If he continued childless, Richard would inherit his crown. For this reason, both York himself and his admirers were much incensed that in spite of his well-known ability, he was excluded as far as possible from public affairs. Indeed, he had of late been sent into a kind of honorable banishment by being made Lord Deputy of Ireland, 1448, for a term of ten years. In the unhappy sister island, he proved to be one of the few successful governors whom England has entrusted with the unenviable post. He and his house were ever after very popular in Ireland. Nor was Richard powerful by reason of his popularity alone. His following among the baronage was very considerable. He himself, through his father's marriage with Anne Mortimer, sister of the last Earl of March, was one of the greatest landholders in the realm. He had wedded Cicely Neville, daughter of the greatest baronial house in the England of that day. Her brother, Richard Neville, Earl of Salisbury, and her nephew, Richard Neville, Earl of Warwick, the famous kingmaker of a later day, were always the trusty partisans of the Duke. Three other Neville peers, the Lords Abergavenny, Latimer, and Falkenberg, 
firmly adhered to the family politics of their race. Another faithful friend was John Mowbray, Duke of Norfolk. He was the nephew of York's wife, Cicely Neville. But his opposition to the king's ministers was probably due rather to an ancient blood feud with the House of Lancaster, for his uncle was the Mowbray who had been beheaded at York in 1405, and his grandfather was the unfortunate opponent of Henry IV in the lists of Coventry. Three or four other houses of minor note were allied with the Nevilles and Mowbrays, and the whole group constituted a faction of formidable strength. The baronage of England had been dwindling in numbers for a century and more. There were now not more than thirty or forty lay peers in the House of Lords. Each of the titles of the year 1450 represented three or four of the old baronies of the time of the Edwards. Hence a compact group of a dozen peers now comprised a third of the whole baronage of England. The estates of Mortimer, Mowbray, and Neville were scattered thickly all over England and gave rallying points in almost every county for the partisans of York. There is no proof whatever that Duke Richard had personally dabbled in treasonable schemes before he had been banished to Ireland by the king's ministers. His conduct all through Henry's minority had been loyal and correct. It seems that he was first roused to action by the clamors of the nation, and only moved when public opinion demanded that he should take his proper place in the state and exert the influence to which he was entitled as first prince of the blood. Had King Henry been a man of ability, who could rule his ministers instead of being ruled by them, there seems no reason to think that Duke Richard would have stirred. All through his life he was a man of cautious and moderate measures, but he would have been more than human if he had refrained from using his strength when he was shouldered aside and ignored by the faction led by the Beauforts, Suffolk, and Queen Margaret. The loss of Normandy was followed by the first popular outbreak in England which had been seen for more than a generation. It was directed against the king's ministers and advisers, and appeared all over the southern shires. Already before Formigny had been fought, a mob of mutinous soldiers had stoned to death Bishop Mollins, the keeper of the privy seal, at Portsmouth, January 1450. Two months later, such a bitter outcry in Parliament was raised against Suffolk that after he had been impeached, the timid king ordered him to leave the realm for the present. He took ship for Flanders but was waylaid on the high seas by some vessels from London and was murdered by the sailors. Who was at the bottom of this act of piracy was never discovered. May 2nd, 1450. If the Queen and Somerset hoped, that the unpopularity of the ministry might end with Suffolk's fall, they were soon undeceived. The populace was still unsatisfied. In the month of June, troubles broke out in many places. Askew, Bishop of Salisbury, the king's confessor, was slain by rioters in his own diocese. There were risings in Sussex and Norfolk also, but the main focus of trouble lay in Kent. It was fomented by a certain John Elmer or Cade, a soldier of fortune, who had served under York both in France and Ireland. He assumed the name of Mortimer, stated that he was a distant relative of Duke Richard, and pretended that he was acting in his interests. With a great mob of Kentish men at his back, he entered London, July 3, 1450, after beating the hasty levies which the ministers sent out against him. The Londoners joined him, and for a few days he was master of the streets. 
he used his power to execute lord say the treasurer and cromer sheriff of kent the chief officials who fell into his power but cade soon proved unable to keep his followers in hand they fell to plundering and so frightened the citizens that many of them took arms and aided the garrison of the tower in driving the insurgents out of the city on being promised a pardon the kentishmen dispersed but their leader refusing to disarm was hunted down and slain meanwhile richard of york hearing of the tumults in england had left his post at dublin and crossed st george's channel when he came to land many of his followers flocked to join him and it seemed likely that a new civil war might break out but the duke contented himself with issuing manifestos against the ministry and setting on his partisans in parliament to attack them the yorkist majority in the house of commons tendered to the king a petition begging him to dismiss somerset and his friends but henry was entirely in the hands of the beauforts and refused to listen to it when thomas young member for bristol spoke of the duke as rightful heir to the crown he was sent to the tower york still held back from violent measures but if anything was yet wanting to complete somerset's discredit with the nation it was the result of the next year's campaign in france in fourteen fifty one the french threw themselves upon aquitaine which the government had wholly neglected during the domestic troubles the gascons did their best but one after another all their cities fell before the french artillery bordeaux yielded in june and bayonne in october without having received any succour from england only calais now remained unconquered of all the broad domain which henry the sixth had inherited on the continent the loss of aquitaine at last drove york to desperation raising his own retainers and those of the nevilles and mowbrays he marched on london the king at the head of a larger force faced him at dartford in kent and there at a conference henry promised to dismiss his present advisers and change his methods of governance but when york had disbanded his army somerset appeared again at the king's right hand and duke richard found that he had been tricked march fourteen fifty two he was arrested and only released after pledging himself never again to take arms this promise he kept under circumstances of great provocation for the next three years from fourteen fifty two to fourteen fifty five meanwhile the last campaign of the hundred years war was about to begin the gascons sincerely attached to the english connection and oppressed by their new french governors burst out into insurrection in the summer of fourteen fifty two to aid them lord talbot now earl of shrewsbury came over from england at the head of four or five thousand men aided by the insurgents he recovered bordeaux and all the lands around it and during the winter of fourteen fifty two and three held his own with ease but when summer came round the whole national levy of france marched into aquitaine and laid siege to castillon hurrying up to rescue it the brave old earl resolved to storm the french lines of circumvallation forming his men in a deep column contrary to the english custom he launched them at the entrenchments but the hostile artillery blew the head of the mast to pieces talbot himself was slain and after a hard struggle the english and gascons were cut to pieces july seventeenth fourteen fifty three this battle settled the fate of aquitaine 
for Somerset could not or would not send out further succors, and Bordeaux capitulated in October after holding out gallantly for ten weeks. A few days after the Battle of Castillon, and long before it could have been known in England, King Henry fell for the first time into a fit of madness, the result, it is said, of a sudden fright. For eighteen months he remained in a state of melancholy apathy, or rather idiocy, and was unable to discharge the simplest functions of royalty. This was, in many ways, the best thing for England that could have happened, and many years of trouble would have been avoided if he had never recovered. After a space, Parliament met and appointed Duke Richard protector of the realm, while Somerset was sent to the Tower. But some three months after her husband had gone mad, the Queen, after nine years of childless wedlock, gave birth to a son, a circumstance which changed the aspect of politics by cutting York out of the line of succession to the throne. He behaved, however, with correctness and moderation, acknowledged the infant prince as heir to the crown, and did homage to him. He acted as regent for more than a year and did his best to bring the internal affairs of the kingdom into order. For the French war nothing could be done. With the second fall of Bordeaux, all hope of retaining a foothold in Aquitaine had vanished. About midwinter, 1454 and 5, King Henry suddenly recovered his senses. The moment that he was convalescent, his wife induced him to release Somerset from prison, and a few weeks later, York and his friends were dismissed from all their offices, which were given back to the Beauforts and their partisans. A parliament was then summoned to meet at Leicester, which was to reverse all the acts of the protectorate. Now at last, Duke Richard lost his temper and took arms at the head of his faction, after issuing a manifesto which denounced Somerset not only as a minister of tried incapacity, but as a perjured traitor. The king, with a considerable armed following, was moving from London toward the Midlands, when the duke and his partisans fell upon him at St. Albans. There was a short but sharp fray in the streets which ended in the victory of the Yorkists, due mainly to the hard fighting of the younger Richard Neville, the Earl of Warwick, who first broke through the Lancastrian barricades. Somerset was slain, and with him several peers of his faction. The king fell into the hands of the victors. May twenty-second, 1455. This insignificant skirmish, in which neither side had more than two thousand men present, cost the lives of only a few scores of fighting men. But it was to be the prelude of a war of the most desperate and bloody kind, which was to mow down half the baronage of England. It came to be known as the War of the Roses from the White Rose, which was the badge of the House of York, and the Red Rose, which was afterwards assumed as the token of the House of Lancaster. At first it seemed possible that the Battle of St. Albans might lead to a mere change of ministry, much desired by the majority of the nation. Duke Richard treated the captive king with all respect and merely reinstated himself and his friends in power. The excitement of the battle had thrown Henry back into his melancholy madness, in which he lay for some months incapable of all action. The duke's term of power, however, lasted little more than a year. In October 1456, the king, having recovered his senses once more, fell under the influence of his wife, who now put herself openly forward as head of the loyalist faction in place of Somerset. 
By her advice, the Yorkists were removed from office. Three years of unrest and bickering followed from 1456 to 1459 before matters again came to a head. Each party, meanwhile, was preparing for the inevitable strife. The bloodshed at St. Albans had made reconciliation impossible, and it was felt that the next struggle must lead to the extermination of one party or the other. Duke Richard saw that it would not avail him to attain once more to office, if he was always liable to be dismissed from it at the Queen's pleasure. When forced to take up arms again, he must make his position secure. Margaret, on the other hand, was conscious that if she failed in the oncoming struggle, the succession of her little son to his father's throne would be more than problematical. She was resolved to fight to the death for his rights, and spent all her time and energy in binding into a compact Lancastrian party those of the baronage who were not allied by blood or ancient friendship with the houses of York, Neville, and Mowbray. Beside the Beaufort clan, now headed by Henry, son of the Somerset who had fallen at St. Albans, she could count on the support of the Percys, old rivals of the Nevilles in the north, of the Courtenays, earls of Devon in the west, of the Dukes of Buckingham and Exeter, and the earls of Oxford and Shrewsbury, and of a body of barons decidedly more numerous than those who followed Duke Richard, though not individually so powerful. All through 1458, both Yorkists and Lancastrians had been secretly arming for a new trial of strength. In the summer of 1459, the Queen began to issue writs in her husband's name, bidding her partisans to be ready to turn out in arms at a moment's notice. It was this fact, followed by a peremptory summons to the Yorkist leaders to present themselves before the King in person, which seems to have provoked the final outburst. In September, Duke Richard raised his standard in the Mortimer lands on the Welsh border, while Salisbury called out the Neville tenants in the North Riding, and the young Earl of Warwick hurried over from Calais to join his father. The two Nevilles made their way to the west to join their kinsman Warwick without difficulty, but Salisbury only after a sharp fight with the loyalists of Cheshire and Staffordshire, on whom he inflicted a bloody check at Bloor Heath. But the numerous supporters of York and London and the eastern counties had no time to join their chief before the fate of the campaign was settled. The king, showing for once in his life both energy and decision, had placed himself at the head of the levies of central England and marched on Ludlow, where the insurgents lay. Their armies faced each other at Ludford across the flooded team, and a battle on a large scale seemed imminent, but the duke's partisans saw that they were much outnumbered, and many of them felt scruples at resisting their sovereign when he personally led his army to attack them. This time it was no question of opposing a Suffolk or a Somerset. The king himself, and not merely the king's name, was arrayed against them. When Henry and his host passed the team and advanced on the Yorkist camp, the insurgents melted away before his face without fighting, and the Lancastrians were victorious without striking a blow. Duke Richard escaped to Ireland, where he found a warm welcome. The two Neville earls escaped in a fishing smack to Calais, where the garrison was devoted to Warwick, who had long been their governor, October 1459. The rout of Ludford placed the Queen in a triumphant position, the Yorkists had put themselves in the wrong by their armed rebellion, and it would have been easy to crush them in their two last strongholds. But Margaret showed herself an incompetent ruler. 
instead of making a vigorous attempt to end the war she set to work to proscribe and punish her enemies before they were completely disposed of the duke and his chief followers were attainted their lands were confiscated some of their minor adherents were executed but no assault in strength was made on calais or on ireland the yorkist party had time to recover from its panic and the nation was shocked by the queen's violent actions the most unwise of them was that she had allowed the open town of newbury to be sacked merely because it belonged to the duke in june of fourteen sixty warwick who showed himself throughout the leading spirit in the yorkist ranks landed at sandwich with a few hundred followers from calais the kentish men at once rose in arms to aid him the londoners opened their gates to him though a royalist garrison maintained itself in the tower and archbishop borcher a cousin of york brought the levies of the eastern counties to his aid the queen taken by surprise had called together her partisans from the midland shires at northampton where they palisaded a strong entrenched camp but warwick hurried forward from london stormed the fortifications and routed the lancastrians king henry was taken prisoner while the captains of his host the duke of buckingham and the earl of shrewsbury were slain july tenth fourteen sixty the queen and her young son escaped to the north where they took refuge with the earl of northumberland duke richard arrived from ireland too late to take part in his nephew's victory and found the greater part of the realm at his feet he called together a parliament in which hot disputes broke out among his partisans as to the way in which the governance of the realm should be arranged twice already the plan of retaining king henry on the throne and making york protector had been tried and had failed many of the duke's advisers were of opinion that he might now set aside henry and declare himself king there was no doubt that from the point of view of strict hereditary right the heir of the house of march and clarence had a better title than the heir of lancaster richard himself leaned to this alternative but warwick and the nevilles were for a less violent change they thought that richard should be proclaimed protector for life and heir to the throne while henry should be allowed to reign in name so long as he lived personally the pious king was not unpopular and no one wished him ill but it was necessary to disinherit his young son edward in order that queen margaret might never again interfere in politics this alternative was ultimately adopted it bears a strong resemblance to the scheme formulated at the treaty of troyes in respect to the crown of france york being named protector for life had now to subdue the parts of the realm where his title was not acknowledged he sent against wales where the two tutors jasper and owen step-brother and stepfather of king henry were in arms footnote some years after the death of henry v his widow catherine of france had wedded owen tudor a plain welsh gentleman her two sons by him edmund and jasper were made earls of richmond and pembroke by their half-brother the king the former who died young was the father of henry the seventh and footnote his eldest son edward earl of march a young man of eighteen who had seen his first service in the field of northampton he himself and his brother-in-law richard neville earl of salisbury marched into the north there the lancastrian interest was very strong indeed the yorkists had little influence north of the humber save in the neville estates and the north riding 
the queen the young duke of somerset and the percys had raised a considerable army and were bent on fighting york undervaluing their numbers and overestimating the extent to which they had been demoralized by the defeat of northampton rashly engaged with them at wakefield though his forces amounted to only a third of theirs he was surrounded and cut to pieces with the whole of his army the earl of salisbury and edmund of york richard's second son a lad of sixteen were captured and put to death in cold blood by the victors their heads with that of the duke himself were struck off and placed on spikes over the gate of york december thirtieth fourteen sixty this murder of prisoners and mutilation of the dead was by far the worst outrage which had yet happened in the struggle it embittered the civil war into a blood feud and made the heirs of york and salisbury pitiless for the future hitherto they had given quarter but now they had the death and dishonour of their fathers to avenge a change for the worse is at once visible in their action after the victory of wakefield the lancastrians flocked in from all sides to join the queen and she was able to march on london at the head of a formidable host the task of opposing her fell on warwick who by the deaths of his father and uncle had become the undisputed head of his party edward of march being as yet young and little known warwick arrayed the yorkists of london kent and the eastern counties at st albans and there awaited the hostile attack it was delivered with great vigour on february seventeenth fourteen sixty one and once more the queen was victorious treachery or chance left a gap in the earl's line through which the lancastrians penetrated and the routed host was pushed westward in its flight leaving the road to london open the king was recaptured by his friends and his wife celebrated his deliverance by executing the two chief yorkist prisoners who fell into her hands the fall of london now seemed so sure that the victorious lancastrians spent eight days in settling the terms of capitulation at their leisure this delay proved their ruin and saved the capital edward of march had now beaten the welch levies of the tudors at the battle of mortimer's cross february second fourteen sixty one and was already on the march for london when the news of the disaster at st albans reached him at chipping norton warwick joined him with the wrecks of his beaten host and after a short conference they agreed to move on the capital and throw themselves into it if it were not already in the enemy's power by a forced march they reached it on the very day when it was to have been surrendered to the queen february twenty sixth the sudden arrival of twelve thousand yorkists within the walls changed the aspect of affairs and the londoners resolved to hold out margaret and her generals were not prepared for a siege their army was discontented at being denied the sack of london and was already beginning to melt home with the plunder which it had gathered in the home counties after some hesitation the lancastrians determined to retire northward to gather reinforcements and to throw the dangers of the offensive on their enemies as they moved backward along the road to york they ravaged the country around in the most shameful manner it was this misbehaviour of the northern moss troopers which mainly accounts for the sudden vehemence with which the midlands now took up the cause of york hitherto they had been but lukewarm but smarting under their losses they turned out in great force to join edward of march and richard of warwick the former before starting on the campaign 
was saluted by his followers as king under the name of Edward IV. He claimed the crown as heir of Lionel of Clarence, ignoring the Lancastrian usurpation and dating his reign from March 1461, though his title did not receive parliamentary sanction until November. Thus with him triumphed the cause of hereditary right, as opposed to that theory of election by the nation represented in Parliament, under which the Lancastrian House had held the throne. Allowing only a few days of rest to their army, Warwick and King Edward followed the Lancastrians toward York, gathering up on their way numerous levies from the eastern and midland shires. On March 28th, the enemy was found lying behind the river Eyre. After driving in his rear guard by a skirmish at Ferrybridge, the Yorkists crossed the stream and came upon the Queen's host, drawn up on the hillside of Towton. Next day, Palm Sunday, March 29, 1461, the bloodiest battle of the War of the Roses was fought. Both sides were in great force, and contemporary writers thought that as many as 60,000 Lancastrians and 45,000 Yorkists were engaged, figures that cannot be trusted for a moment. In a blinding snowstorm, the Yorkists climbed the hillside and ranged themselves opposite their foes. After a preliminary discharge of arrows, the hosts clashed together all along the line and remained locked together for many hours of close fighting with sword and axe. Toward evening, a flank attack made by the Duke of Norfolk settled the result of the battle, and the Queen's army turned to fly. Besides those who fell in the pursuit, great numbers were drowned in the flooded stream of the cock, which lay just behind their position. The slaughter was very great, especially among the barons and knights, who could not easily fly in their heavy mail. The Earl of Northumberland and four other peers were slain, the Earls of Devon and Wiltshire, and a great number of knights and squires captured in the pursuit, were beheaded in revenge for the slaying of Salisbury and Prince Edmund after Wakefield. The Queen, with her husband and her young son, fled from York into Scotland the moment that the result of the battle was known. With them went the young Duke of Somerset, almost the only Lancastrian of note who escaped from the field alive. The party was crushed beyond hope of recovery, and though its desperate partisans held out for nearly three years more in Wales and on the Scottish border, they were never able to shake the power of the new king. Indeed, England, south of the Tees, was free from civil war from the day of Towton onwards. The lingering struggle in Northumberland was only sustained by two supports, the Queen's untiring energy and the desperate hatred for the Nevilles which filled the hearts of the Percys and the other nobles of the North. Margaret bought aid from Scotland by ceding Berwick to King James III. She crossed to France and wrung money and auxiliaries from the stingy Louis XI by promising to give over Calais to him. But all her efforts came to naught, the great Northumbrian fortresses of Annock and Bamborough were taken by the Earl of Warwick in 1462. By the aid of her French troops, she recovered them for a moment, but this success was only to lead to a second disaster. Warwick returned and blew the great northern strongholds to pieces with his artillery, 1463. The Scots grew tired of the war. King Louis would give no more aid when he found that Calais was not likely to come into his hands, the final desperate rally of the northern Lancastrians was crushed at the fights of Hedgley Moor, April 15th, and Hexham, May 13th, 1464. 
after this victory the few surviving chiefs of the loyalists fell into warwick's hands and when he had beheaded the duke of somerset and the lords ruse and hungerford the long resistance collapsed for lack of leaders at last there was no man left in england who did not bow his head before king edward and his great vice-regent richard neville king henry himself wandering hopelessly in disguise through the realm that had once been his own was captured and consigned to the tower where he lingered for six years in pious melancholy End of chapter twelve thank you for listening to this episode of all things plantagenet remember we also have a website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources as well as the other episodes Thank you for listening and have a great day.